Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is James Bowie. Hello. And this is Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new and old nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. Today we are talking about Neon Genesis Evangelion. Oh boy. <laughs> Neon Genesis Evangelion is an anime series that initially aired in Japan from October 4th, 1995 to March 27th, 1996. It is set in the future of 2015, 15 years after a cataclysmic event called the Second Impact nearly destroyed humanity. Civilization has averted the apocalypse, but perhaps only temporarily. Gigantic beings of tremendous power and mysterious origin, called angels, are attacking the survivors. The intergovernmental agency Nerve has the only weaponry capable of fighting them, the biological mecha units called Ava. The leader of Nerve tasks his son, 14-year-old Shinji Ikari, with piloting Ava Unit 1. Shinji is reluctant, terrified, and lonely. Sounds right. Yeah. Sounds right. I, I think I are, got it. <laughs> we are yeah. pairing this with our Mobile Suit Gundam episode. Yes, we, we are. Released two, ep- uh, two weeks ago, which we highly suggest checking out. Oh, we really, really do. Um, <laughs> I'm having a very good time recently. I mean, I usually do, but just especially right now. And everyone should indulge in it with me. So I'm going to be talking about the history of Evangelion. More, I'm going to be talking about giant mech and giant robots, I suppose is a better word, and why they are such a Japanese thing. I have wondered that for so long and never learned. Thank you. And I'm also going to try and continue James's segment where I talk about the genres that comprise Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, James, you're doing production? Yes. um, As you may have heard, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion has been picked up by Netflix for exclusive streaming rights in the West, and this is after decades of it not being available over here in any legal way. It's a big deal, and it's a big deal because when Evangelion came out, it changed anime as we know it. I want to talk about how it did that, why it did that, and and why the creator, Anno, was particularly suited to change anime from the inside, and why that makes him different than people like Miyazaki we've covered before. I'm very excited. This actually sounds very fascinating. Well, let's hope I do it justice. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) So what struck me when watching both Mobile Suit Gundam and Neon Genesis Evangelion as someone who doesn't watch a lot of anime and a lot of giant mech shows was how prevalent giant robots or mecha are in Japan. And this is also for my research on uh, Mobile Suit Gundam. Um, Compared to any other parts of the world. And while there have been stories of giant robots made in other countries, they always feel like they're paying homage to the Japanese originals. And James, please tell me if you feel differently, and our listeners too, mecha feels like a distinctly Japanese genre. For sure. So for my history segment, I wanted to look at why these giant robots are a Japanese genre and also expound on James's segment that he did last week by looking at the genres that make up mobile uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, not Mobile Suit Gundam, you did that. And hopefully by looking at that, we can see part of why it, quote-unquote, changed anime. Mm, and this will lead very nicely into my segment. Now, let's start with our foray into giant robots with Godzilla and the Atom Bomb. Yay! That's already going to relate to mine. <laughs> <laughs> yay. I don't know. How, how many people say yay for the Atom Bomb, first of all? Oh, well, I was yang Godzilla. <laughs> The atom bomb was dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the U.S. during World War II in August of 1945. The bombs immediately killed over 100,000 people and many more over the years from radiation exposure. Right afterwards, Japan unconditionally surrendered to the United States. After the war, the U.S. occupied Japan till 1952, and they banned talking about the bombings. Uh, they were scared that it would undermine their presence. When the occupation ended, Japanese artists started using their art to express their feelings and fears of the bombs. And Godzilla, which actually I should have known, but I didn't, was one of those pieces. In the first Godzilla film, which was released in October of 1954, Godzilla was a metaphor for the destructive power of the nuclear bombs and the bombings of Tokyo. Um, 
in Japan, he's called Gojira, uh, which is a combination of the words gorilla and whale. And it's the story of an ancient monster that awakens in the sea after being exposed to radiation after the atomic bomb is dropped. Godzilla's skin is meant to look like a hibaksa, or bomb-affected person. The creator, Tomoyuki Tamaka, was expressing his fears of the A-bombs and the possibility of what they could do to the world. You know, I knew that Godzilla was metaphorically about the atomic bomb and it was, you know, directly tied into it with his, his coming out of the ocean. I had no idea it got so literal as his skin resembling yeah. those affected by it. I mean, it's extremely literal, the whole thing. I mean, I think he radiates atomic breath as well. Yeah. Mecha stories, which also started coming out in post-occupation Japan, um, starting in 1956 with Tetsujin, can be seen as a continued look at a powerful force of destruction, an exploration of what humans could do with technology. Sometimes it's good. A lot of times it's not. They're also indicative of Japan's rapid industrialization after World War II and the possibilities that this new period of industry represented for the country. Now let's talk about samurai. I'm going to give a very brief overview of them. I am 100% positive I'm leaving I'm leaving some parts out. I just want to give you a basic, you know, yeah. this is what they are for those who don't know. We do roughly 15-minute segments. Our listeners will forgive us for leaving some parts of the history of samurai out. <laughs> I hope so. We're leaving a lot out. Uh, samurai meant one who serves. They were originally men of noble birth assigned to guard members of the imperial court starting in the late 700s. The imperial court had problems maintaining control of the entire country, so it started instating authorities who were essentially regional governors. The 12th century was the shogun era in Japan, or military dictatorship. During it, samurai backed the lords, or shogun, which made them very powerful. This led to the Age of Wars in the 15th century, where hundreds of strongmen bid for power— Around then, the term samurai could be applied to anyone who carried a sword or who could exercise violence. If you called yourself a samurai and you had a sword, people might not argue with you. Wow, that's where I thought samurai came from. I didn't realize that it actually did have a more, well, quote-unquote, noble origin before that. Mm -hmm. During the Meiji Restoration, the feudal system was abolished and the imperial rule was reestablished, and the samurai could no longer carry weapons, and for the most part, kind of their post was obsolete. So many of them joined the elite ranks, and it pretty much ended them as a warrior class. The code that samurai followed was Bushido. Uh, Bushido translated is the precepts of knighthood or the way of the warrior. The word did not exist before the Edo period in the 16th century, and this might also have to do with your idea that samurai didn't exist before then as well. Um, There was no uniform code that samurai lived by. However, the idea of Bushido is that it was expounding the virtues that had been held up and developed by noble samurai as far back as the 700s. The eight virtues, or seven, depending on where you look, glossed over are justice, courage, mercy, politeness, sincerity slash honesty, honor slash loyalty, character, and self-control. Some of them, the translation is a little bit weird, so it kind of encompasses two of our words. The way the West perceives Bushido is mostly derived from Inazo Nitobi's book, Bushido, The Soul of Japan. Nitobi was considered a Japanese Renaissance man. Born into a samurai family, he was an author, diplomat, agricultural expert, politician, economist, had five doctoral degrees, wrote in Japanese, English, and German, studied abroad in America and Germany, and converted to Christianity. He wrote this back in 1900 and meant it to give Japan its own unique identity. He wanted to differentiate Japan from other Asian countries. Westerners tended to lump them all together, all Asian countries, and also establish Japan as an equal to Western countries with with its own codes similar to Western codes of chivalry. So have you used the word propaganda yet? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Or or not propaganda, but a a public relations move on behalf of his country with the A world that sneers at it. Exactly, yeah. The thing is, he kind of accomplished it. I mean, his propaganda reached me as a kid. (laughs) I have thought my whole life as the samurai as having Bushido and it being this ancient honor code. I had no idea it was so recent. Mm -hmm. Um, The book— Or at least in name. 
Yeah, no, it, and it surprised me too. I, I'd read it before, but it, like really confirming it was a little bit shocking. Um, his book was a huge hit. It was an international hit. It was translated into multiple languages. I think it was actually more popular abroad than it was in Japan. Teddy Roosevelt loved it and bought many copies for his friends. Of course he did. <laughs> now, there was some initial pushback in Japan, but overall they took a lot of pride in the book's success. Um, it also helped that Natobi's book also coincided uh, the release with Japan winning the Sino-Japanese War. And it was a huge boost to the Japanese sense of pride and these ideals that they were bringing to their wars and their conquering of other nations. As the 1930s approached, Japan started embracing a more nationalistic, fanatical samurai code, which led to its eventual entering and defeat in World War II. And instruction on the code was abolished at the end of the war. So right now, you, our listeners, might be thinking, great, Claire, kind of interesting. Thanks so much. But these samurai aren't piloting giant robots. What, is, what does this have to do with giant robots, much, much less Neon Genesis Evangelion? I'm getting there. Because of the dissolution, uh, dissolution of the samurai— and the romanticism of them by not only the West, but in Japan as well, they eventually took on a cultural status similar to a European knight or American cowboy. They became a group that embodied a Japanese ideal. And these were ideals that were held up in World War II by the Japanese. When you look at these mechs in Japanese pop culture and the tasks that they take on and how they go about accomplishing them, a lot of times they are practicing values that are associated with the samurai and in a lot of ways that distinctly American heroes in media have traces of cowboys in them, these mechas and their pilots are the new Japanese heroes and can take on the jobs that the samurais would have or, or would have thought to have taken on back in the day. Yeah, no, I can see it. And I've got Die Hard in my head as you say that. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually thinking of like Clint Eastwood movies, but definitely Die Hard. Uh, the mechs have loyalty to their pilot. Uh they are a lot of times fighting for justice. There's a lot of courage that goes into piloting these mechs and the honor associated with it. Now, of course, these traits come in varying degrees depending on the story, but they are almost always in some way upheld. In Mobile Suit Gundam, the mechs are the best fighters on each side of the conflict, trying to defend or fight for their superiors, and loyalty is a big deal in the Samurai Code. Um, they are a particularly great example because the mechs in Mobile Suit Gundam are drawn like samurai. Which somehow I never noticed <laughs> until you were sharing with me some of the preparation for your segment. In Neon Genesis Evangelion, the mechs are humanity's only hope against a seemingly alien force. It is their job to protect those who cannot fend for themselves, despite whatever strain it puts on them and their pilots. Um, the samurai have now become almost mythological as time has gone on. The idea that we have of them is probably not what a lot of them were really like. Who knows? You know what I mean? But in the way that we romanticize a cowboy or a knight, how many knights do you think really upheld chivalry? But I believe is um, that mechs have continued this mythological institution into the modern era. I do want to give a huge shout out to Ollie Barter, who writes for Forbes. I really appreciated his article from Bushido to Beam Savers looking into the origins of Mecca in Japan. He had a lot of interesting things to say on Mecca and comparing them to an industrial type of samurai, which, as a non-Japanese expert, helped put me on this path. I want to say, too, that um, for my research, Forbes, Forbes was a decent help, but I was surprised to find it any help at all. Um, for anime and video games, Forbes has some good writing now, and it makes me uncertain of what Forbes brand really is at this point. But <laughs> We appreciate you, Forbes. Well, we do, but we do. Another distinctly Japanese aspect that comes out in mecha stories is the idea of kami. Now, I attempted to give a more in-depth description of kami in our Kubo and the Two Strings episode, uh, big word on attempted. So I'm going to give a really brief one now. Apparently, the easiest translation of kami is spirits, but that is too simple for what it is. Kami are deities in the Shinto religion, specific deities. And they're not just that, though. It is the existence of beings that is found in everything. It makes the object or being itself what it is rather than something else. The way I see it is like a spirit or a soul in any object, alive or not. 
Comedy can also be things that inspire a sense of wonder in the eye of the beholder. They can be good or evil. As far as mecha go, I mean, the machines are an extension of their pilots. And in the way that Kami can inspire awe, mecha also seem to take on a grander form. And in some iterations, mecha can only almost be sentient and have a personality and spirit beyond their pilot. This is certainly the case in Neon Genesis Evangelion. So hopefully... By talking about Godzilla and nuclear war, the samurai and Bushido and Kami, you can get an idea of how all these things have influenced mecha stories, whether intentionally or not, and also how, while popular all over the world, why mecha is such a Japanese medium. Now I'm going to quickly tie my history segment with James's on Mobile Suit Gundam, and I want to talk about the genres that uh, comprise uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. First of all, science fiction, which also applies to Mobile Suit Gundam. You didn't mention it because it's such—it's the broad stroke. Um, I'm going to go quickly over the definitions I used when I had a more in-depth explanation of what science fiction was in our Frankenstein episode. Uh, fiction dealing principally with the place of actual or imagined science on individuals or having a scientific factor as an essential ori- orienting component. Depicting the future— taking what we have and trying to extrapolate what's possible. I am confident that all of these categories apply to Neon Genesis Evangelion and Mobile Suit Gundam. Am I right? Yep. Mecha. It is a mecha uh, story, which you defined in our last episode. I'm going to quickly uh, reiterate it. According to the New York Public Library, who knew? It is a genre of Japanese manga and anime that heavily features and focuses on mechanical innovation. Robots, cyborgs, androids, and space stations, for example, all fall under the wide umbrella of mecha. However, robots are usually the primary focus. So yes, Neon Genesis Evangelion is definitely a mecha. Real mecha anime, which again you defined last week. Again, New York Public Library. A more realistic, science-based, where mechas are mass-produced usually for war. Again, Neon Genesis Evangelion is definitely a real mecha anime. So all these things are similar to Mobile Suit Gundam. It's not so much a space opera. What makes Neon Genesis Evangelion so different? It changed anime, right? It did. It's also a psychological drama. Psychological dramas tend to center on the character's inner life. They tend to be more important than the narrative. This includes a focus on their unstable emotional states. There can also be a dissolving sense of reality, and it usually merges with other dramatic categories. Some other examples of psychological dramas, which can also kind of get confused or like sucked into psychological thrillers, are Black Mirror. These are just ones that we've covered. Mm -hmm. Legion, The Terror. And I think that Neon Genesis Evangelion is most certainly a psychological drama. It is certainly focusing on the characters in our life. Uh, It blew my mind when I was younger and I had started watching it and then saw it um, labeled somewhere by genre. And it actually put psychological before it put mecha. And I went, that's true. Yeah, it's definitely (laughs) true. You know, my basic understanding at that time was was uh, astonished. So that's my segment. I hope it leads nicely into yours. I think it does. We should be able to go very nicely into the making of Neon Genesis Evangelion and the very particular man behind it, Hideaki Anno. I'm going to talk mostly about Hideaki Anno. Um, But I want to mention a few other names and give them credit before we do, just as we did for Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, Evangelion was directed and written by Hideaki Anno. The music, uh, the much acclaimed music, was by Shiro Sagisu. The mecha design was by Ikuto Yamashita. And the character design was by Yoshiyuki Sadamoto. And it was produced by the studio Gainax. The first different thing that I want to point out about Anno is that in relation to the other creators of anime that we've talked about, the most critically acclaimed anime that we've talked about, uh, such as Ghost in the Shell, which also came out in 1995, just like Evangelion did, a hell of a year. Um, But that was directed by Mamoru Oshii. 
And Princess Mononoke would come out just a couple of years later in 1997. That was by Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, another great big anime that has a creator who's a little different from Anno in this way that I want to talk about is uh, Katsuhiro Otomo. Now, these major creators of anime are different in two key respects to Anno. One is that they're older than he is. One of the special things about Anno is that he grew up as a lover of Japanese science fiction television and as a lover of anime. That wasn't possible for Hayao Miyazaki when he was growing up. It wasn't something that could even have been a thing. In our last episode, we talked about Yoshiyuki Tomino and how he didn't even want to get into animation. And when he did get into animation, he was working on foundational series in the medium like Astro Boy, the very first. So he wanted to make films. He wanted to make films. It wasn't even possible for him to... Uh, be a fan of anime in that way, and he kind of just fell into it. Very different is Anno. Anno is an otaku, which is a Japanese word for a fan of anime, and it was only first starting to be a word back when Anno was a fan. He's a kid from the 60s. And so his college story is very different than Yoshiyuki Tomino, the director of Gundam, when he was in college, his first work on animation wasn't even a paid gig. He could, it wasn't that easy to get a gig in anime at that time. This was the world that Gundam had helped to create in 1979, a golden age in the 80s of space opera anime and all kinds of other animated stories in Japan. He began work on anime as a hobbyist someone who made short films with his friends for as little money as possible but put as much blood, sweat, and tears into it as possible to make short films for anime fan conventions. Sounds like podcasts. <laughs> oh, sadly it does. Um, what happened was that he got together with his friends and they made these videos that you can still find online called Daikon 3 and Daikon 4 that they uh, brought on two different years to this, this big convention for fans of the, you know science fiction and anime. And these short films were basically a celebration of all things anime. And they were really well done for such a low budget. People were really impressed, so impressed with this college student who was doing it in his spare time that they hired him to work on anime. That's how he got his first job, and he worked on another real robot mecha that we mentioned uh, last episode called Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. And people at the office would say, hey, that, that's the guy that worked on that, that video from that convention. So that's very different from all those other creators. And part of what put me on to that was a really interesting article that came out in the mid-1990s in Japan, an article of criticism uh, in the just, uh, you know, an art critic sort of sense that was about the state of anime and was about Neon Genesis Evangelion and what it meant. And it pointed out that Anno was so special for being an otaku and not just that, for making an anime that was a quality piece of art that rose above the rest of the genre while still retaining its anime nature and the tropes of anime. I want to point out, as the article does, and I'm going to link to it, um, I want to point out, as the article does, that Miyazaki's influences weren't anime. They're actually much more literary. And although he started with very anime-like properties, as soon as he blew up, he moved away from that very distinctly. And What's by... an anime-like property? Because I actually don't know. Uh, well, one of the things the article points out is that uh, Neon, Gen Neon Genesis Evangelion has... Uh, beautiful young girls, that anime often has something like a Lolita complex in a lot of it, uh, that there is a, a big emphasis in, on um, hard tech, on science fiction, and that Miyazaki's stuff is very magical, very departed from that. And if you think about Kiki's delivery service and her character design, she doesn't look like a lot of young girls that age presented in any other anime, does she? I suppose not. I haven't seen a ton of anime. Most of the anime I've, anime I've seen is Miyazaki. So I might have a skewed uh, well, vision of it. One of the things this article talks about is that work 
the the narrow definition that this person puts out about anime, which they say they're being very bold in doing so, is to say that Miyazaki is not anime, it's animation. The same way that Akira is not, that Akira's influence is actually much more American comics, and that's part of why Americans like Akira so much. And that Ghost in the Shell by Momono Oshi is actually something that takes a lot of outside influences as well in effort to separate itself cynically from other anime and be taken seriously elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Going so far as to have you two write music for it back then in the mid-90s. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, of course, Evangelion has giant robots, which you mentioned in your history segment is a distinctly Japanese genre to have these uh, kids piloting mecha, right? Uh, The article also says that in 1979, Mobile Suit Gundam came out. In 1995, Evangelion came out and was considered the most significant work of anime television since Mobile Suit Gundam. And it agrees with that. And the author says, actually, and I should name the author, this is Hiroki Azuma. Azuma says that not only is that true, it is a condemnation of everything that's come between (laughs) Gundam and Evangelion. Uh, One of the things that's very particular about Anu is that he is taking a love of anime and all these anime tropes and then making it into something new where people like Miyazaki say, oh, I meant to say this earlier. One of the things I'd, I'd heard Miyazaki say before was that young animators should stop watching so much anime. Uh-huh. <laughs> he said, spend more time learning to make anime, not watching I it. remember that from our Princess Mononoke episode. Yeah, yeah. So th- there's a real uh, uh, line drawn between some of the greatest creators and what most of the genre really is. Uh, Anno takes away that line. So a little more about his uh, career. He worked on Macross, and then he actually ended up working on Naushika Valley of the Wind, a Miyazaki project. Even though I said he's very different than Yoshiyuki Tomino in his love of anime and in his age, like the Gundam uh, director, Anno was mentored by Miyazaki and helped do the battle scenes for Naushika Valley of the Wind. And Miyazaki became an important friend for the rest of his life and to this day. Now, one of the other influences that he has in creating this series, Evangelion, is Ultraman. He's a fan not just of anime, but of distinctly Japanese science fiction productions. Ultraman is a character, a giant robot alien savior character that first appeared in Godzilla... And then had his own show in 1966, and he was created by uh, Eiji Eiji Tsuburaya um, for Tsuburaya Productions. Um, Ultraman is actually where he gets the idea for the Ava, because Ultraman's human actor inside this giant robot suit wasn't totally covered when uh, the series first started, the first version of the suit. And so you could see the skin of a man underneath the robot, Ah. and as a kid... Uh, Anno found that very frightening. And so he decided to frighten us with it (laughs) in Evangelion. Anyway, if you look into Evangelion at all, you will learn that Anno was very depressed before he made the show. And I think it gives you a really good insight into what Evangelion is if you've never watched it or even if you have, and a great insight into his thought process and what was going into him. If you listen to a statement that he made while making it. This is from July 17, 1995, before Neon Genesis Evangelion will air. He says, And in that world, a 14-year-old boy shrinks from human contact, and he tries to live in a closed world where his behavior dooms him, and he has abandoned the attempt to understand himself, a cowardly young man who feels that his father has abandoned him, and so he has convinced himself that he is a completely unnecessary person, so much so that he cannot even commit suicide. I'm going to skip ahead a bit. He talks about the other characters and some of the damage that they've incurred in their life uh, emotionally and psychologically. He goes on to say, They say, To live is to change. I started this production with the wish that once the production was complete, the world and the heroes would change. That was my true desire. I tried to include everything of myself in Neon Genesis Evangelion. Myself, a broken man who could do nothing for four years. 
a man who ran away for four years, one who was simply not dead. Then one thought, you can't run away, came to me, and I restarted this production. It is a production where my only thought was to burn my feelings into film. I know my behavior was thoughtless, troublesome, and arrogant, but I tried. I don't know what the result will be. That is because within me the story is not yet finished. I don't know what will happen to Shinji, Misato, or Rei. I don't know where life will take them, because I don't know where life is taking the staff of the production. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's very intense. And so now I want to talk about uh, more things that are special about Evangelion. Uh, as different as this series is in its psychological focus and its deconstruction of the mecha genre, it was advertised as if it would be just another mecha show. It was not advertised in the broad way that a Miyazaki film would be, a piece of great high art for mass appeal and enjoyment. No, this was something that was advertised in specialty anime magazines like any other mecha. And when it begins, although it is very different in that Shinji does not want to pilot the mecha and he is afraid of being hurt if he pilots it, and then is of course hurt when he pilots it, that is something that had been done a bit in things like Gundam before. The continued focus on all the trauma psychologically that all the characters are walking around with is something special, but it's still packaged inside Monster of the Week. And Monster of the Week done exquisitely well. It's a real robot mecha and Monster of the Week. Two genres that people love and they were getting what they thought they came for, but with something surprising underneath. All this business about the angels, the mysterious nature of NERV, this government organization, the characters and how much it seemed to focus on their relationships and their desire to both be safe from harm and to also relate emotionally to other people. Very early on in the show, there's an episode called The Hedgehog's Dilemma. And The Hedgehog's Dilemma is from this 19th century philosopher, I forget his name, but the character of Shinji explains his own predicament using this story. The story of a group of hedgehogs in the cold, wanting to huddle together for warmth, but finding that when they do, they prick each other, and they have a choice between the cold or the warmth of contact with their kind and the pain it inevitably causes. That's early on in this show, even while it's doing Monster of the Week. And a funny thing happens while he's making this. People love it. Love it to the degree that it starts spreading to people who don't even watch anime, even though it is so basic an anime that people called it the remixed anime. Because if you watched Ultraman and you watched Mobile Suit Gundam, you see all that stuff here. It's a deconstruction while being a love letter at the same time. And something special happens that causes Anno to shift directions, and change what would have been the ending of the story halfway through. Somewhere around episode 13 of this 26-episode series, he realizes how popular it is, that it's growing in popularity and pulling in people who aren't even the otakus it was initially uh, pitched to, marketed to. And he gets a book from a friend about mental illness. And for the first time in his life, He's learning that what he went through in this last four years, what he continues to struggle with even while working on this project, is something medical, something that can be diagnosed, something that's clinical. And he now has a language and a way to speak about his experience that he's never had before. And knowing that his show is now so popular, he thinks, you know what? I've got the space and permission to really tackle this. And what was the psychological undercurrent of an exquisite Monster of the Week show that's packing more than you expect becomes a show that is full-on psychological with Mecca as secondary halfway through the show. And as that, he makes that hard turn. And as his other influences in... Um, avant-garde filmmaking are coming more and more into the show and his shot selection and the lighting and the way he's covering these characters' relationships, more special things happen. It starts to influence the art world. It starts to make people who never watch anime think, oh, I'd like to watch this. This is like nothing I've seen before. 
And one of the things that critical article I mentioned before was talking about that's so special about Neon Genesis Evangelion that is a condemnation of the work that came before it in the early 90s is that this anime was dealing with the anxieties of the present moment, the anxieties that were hurting Japan in the mid-90s that no other anime was touching. There was a recession in Japan, and anime was suffering as a result, but it was also suffering because of a pronounced lack of creativity that everyone writing about that period has talked about. People kept trying to relive the 80s. Anno wrote an anime that dealt with the anxiety they were feeling where when the anime came out in 95, there had just been an earthquake. There had just been a terrorist attack on the subway by some disaffected, turned domestic terrorist man with sarin gas. It was into that culture that this anime came out, and it was of the time in a way that anime wasn't daring to be. And so there was this incredible buildup. Where will this thing go? It's like nothing we've ever seen, and we're all watching it, not just anime fans. And it ends with the two weirdest, most out-there episodes anyone had ever seen, and perhaps has ever seen since. He got a famous amount of backlash for episodes 25 and 26 finishing the series. And it was because, in part, he had made something so good that expectations got so big, and also that to make something so good, he had to spend so much money. The production value of Evangelion is through the roof. You know, it, it, at least the production value you see. He had to play a very particular game to get those first 24 episodes done. The animation for the mecha scenes is fantastic. And there are great scenes between characters that are very still, where you feel the tension, you feel them longing to connect with each other, and they can't. That stillness is an artistic choice. It is also saving money on animation. <laughs> and he was able to play that balance all the way through, and then he just plumb ran out of money. There's so much illustrative effort in Evangelion. The science has so many details, and all that costs money. At the end, he had this big psychological drama. He had to figure out a way to finish, and he couldn't do it to the audience's satisfaction. To the point that this man who began this show attempting to save himself from suicidal thoughts through work and pouring it into the page got death threats for the ending. Wow. Yeah. I don't think it's spoiling anything to directly tie this to the themes we talked about in our Mobile Suit Gundam episode and to say that Evangelion is about humanity's attempt to better understand one another, to connect with one another. He just tells it differently than Tomino in a way that's more focused on a few people, people who are hurting very, very deeply in the way that he has. He's also doing it, like you mentioned before, and the article mentioned, of the time period. Yes, Yes, in feeling the anxieties of the now about what's going to happen with our environment that may be trying to kill us, with people who are so upset that this is how they lash out. Um, anyway, I think it's really awful that uh, someone who was trying to make something that had a message of coming together and better understanding one another <laughs> is, getting death is getting death threats because they didn't like the ending. Um, so... He then comes out with a movie because Evangelion is getting more and more popular. The more it's run, more and more people are watching it. And it's going further and further beyond what was considered anime's market. They had to do movies. And those movies did very well, were critically acclaimed, and he gave people another ending. And it was the same message as before, the same themes as before, but this time it was angrier. He has live-action shots in the middle of the end of Evangelion where... You're looking at the studio, Gainax's studio, where they made it, and there's blood splattered on the wall, directly dealing with the way people were treating him while he was making the sequel for them. Anyway, I don't know that there's ever been anything like that, certainly not with the appeal. In conclusion, he took this anime that... I know Claire's laughing at me. <laughs> he took this thing that was called... Uh, the remix anime that just had so much of everything that had come before it. He deconstructed it. He lovingly homaged it. And he made something that at first drew an otaku, but then was so exceptional, it drew in more and more people who never thought they liked anime. And I'm talking about in Japan. And then he disappointed them. And then he wowed them into shock and awe. 
And this is the anime that it was such a big deal that it was coming to Netflix. And there's more to talk about re-watching it and the uh, controversy that came with the Netflix redubbing of the anime. But I think that's more suitable to talk about in our opinion uh, segment since that deals with sexuality and its portrayal. So with that, (laughs) uh, what did you think, Claire, watching it for the very first time in the Netflix dub? I really enjoyed it. I mean, I'd, I'd reading and doing research on Mobile Suit Gundam, I'd read how good it was. So I expected it to be good. It was that good. I don't have, I don't watch a lot of anime, so I don't have them to compare it to. But I thought it stood out as a, an amazing piece of art. Um, the last two episodes haven't bugged me, um, but I also was told they were weird. So it, I just enjoyed them for what they were. But I, I think it was good that I went in knowing. This yeah, is that strange. this is going to be completely different. Um, but I was very impressed, and I started off frustrated with it because um, again, the anime tropes that can kind of annoy me, um, like the young girls and the weird tensions and things like that, were so there. But I felt that it actually very much redeemed itself very quickly. I would say by like. 10 episodes in, I was ready to forgive a lot. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the the more um, anime fan service stuff, uh, fan service being something that has no artistic value, but is there just to satiate the things the fans want to see, often sexually. Um, the anime fan service uh, mostly has come to an end by the time he makes the hard pivot into the making the psychological thing the primary thing and not the underlying thing. Did you enjoy it, James? Yeah, I did. I did. I appreciated it much more than when I first watched it 10 years ago, when it blew my mind. Um, One of the things that I've noticed, I think it's a change in me. Uh, Shinji as a character is often made fun of in memes and in commentary on the anime as being so whiny. And that's even by people that like the anime. Uh, he's very different for an anime protagonist. Um, one of the things that uh, Anno said even before it started was that a woman who is uh, experiences such problems with intimacy as Misato, his guardian uh, and commanding officer, and a person who wants to run away as much as Shinji does and is filled with such resentment and has such difficulty bonding with people, uh, they're not typically who would be heroes in a story, but they're the heroes of his story. I had a much uh, more difficult time relating to people back that like that when I was younger, but um, <laughs> I think more human experience in the last 10 years and um, getting to know more people who suffer from the kind of anxiety and depression that the characters are suffering from, it made them much more relatable to me and uh, made Shinji much more likable to me. I liked Shinji a lot. I think he frustrated me sometimes, but I felt like his anxieties and his reluctance to go into the um, mech were all very relatable. They make all the sense in the world. What's harder for him, and which now I feel more of like an empathetic pain when watching it is where part of the real value in the show is, is when Shinji wants to be close to people like the hedgehog, but he can't. And, and one of the hardest things in the show for me to watch is when people are suffering emotionally, when bad things happen to them and they take it extra hard because they're already so fragile, and the people around them who are also hurting, who knows what it feels like to, to be hurt like that, don't have the tools as people to give comfort. And you watch these characters resent each other for not comforting each other, even as they repeat the cycle on their end. It's, it can be really hard to watch in that way, uh, but very powerful. Yeah, it's a bunch of sad people. Yeah, and they're horny too. They're really, really horny, at least, at least Shinji is, and actually one of the, the female characters, Asuka, you could say is too. And I of, always think Asuka just wants attention. Yeah. Well, what she wants is love, and the way that she thinks she can get it from a man is is that way. And her relationship with her mother is so fraught, it's almost impossible for her to seek it in a woman. It's, it's a lot of hurt people. It's a lot of hurt children and adults who are sharing the similar sharing similar issues, and uh, 
Yeah. Can you, would you like to talk about how it relates to Gundam and the themes in Gundam and how they pair? Oh, and why we paired them? Yeah. Well, I think Reluctant Heroes. Yes. Mechs. Children traumatized by participating in a war that it seems they have no choice but to participate in for the sake of those they care about. Um, both innovative animes that changed how animes were made, or the course of how animes were made, I should say. Yes. And both anime that used children um, in war to look at why people end up fighting and also to deal with the problem in different ways of whether or not humans can really truly understand each other and if it's possible to use science to help us ascend our current state of humanity, to become something else, a new type of being that can... Uh, Stop hurting one another. Mm -hmm. It's really big stuff. And uh, it is done surprisingly well as the series goes on. It's actually something that makes me resent more the times where I feel like the anime fan service of a 14-year-old girl is is uh, really inappropriate. Yeah, which did bug me. Yeah. I, and I feel like it's the angles that the girls are drawn from. It's, you know, if it's a boy, if it's a, a, if it's Shinji checking out these girls and you see it from Shinji's point of view, it makes sense and I get it and I and get doing that. Sometimes, and sometimes that's the is. case. Sometimes it is. But a lot of times it's just shots of butts, you know, and it's it's not for Shinji, it's for the viewer. And there's and an, it's also men drawing these 14-year-old girls' butts. It just, oof. Yeah, and there's two almost... Something like contradictory, but not quite contradictory uh, uh, things I heard from Anno when researching this and trying to try to get an angle on that aspect of it. Uh, one thing he said in an interview once was that anime as an industry is almost pornographic in that its audience is mostly men and everything everything is done to please them and in every way possible. And that was him speaking frankly about the issues with it. Another thing I heard is that he actually gets very upset and has complained about the sexualization of his female characters by adult men. But he did it. He did it. He did it, I guess, in his own mind in a way that was okay because it was for teenagers to feel that way it about it. Homage, maybe. Well, know. in part, but also, yeah, to, to please what he thought the, the core demographic was. Um and for everybody else to appreciate it from that outside right, those angle. teenagers also grow up and maybe still have that in their mind. Um, I want to ask you, because we talk about this, we try to talk about this in our linked episodes, have your views on the two of these changed because of the research, especially the two of them together? Yes, they're much more connected. The uh, What a new type is in Gundam and the human mm -hmm. instrumentality project in Neon Genesis Evangelion are so directly linked uh, that I can't believe I didn't see it before. They are. I also think it it oddly like relates to the samurai and the new person upholding honor and defending the, the person that we're asking this of. Yes, and the cost that it takes on them, something that Gundam looks at that anime didn't look at before mm -hmm. and that no anime until Evangelion looked at in a, a more intense uh, It's so funny way. that after Gundam, no other anime was actually trying to look at that still. Well, they if they were, it wasn't something that was so radically um, mm -hmm. going further and developing on what Gundam had did. And of course, Gundam continued to have shows. One of Gundam's most popular installments ever was Gundam Wing, and it came out in 1995 in the same but year. But it was a very different thing, wasn't extremely it? Extremely different show, extremely different show. And then another question we ask, would you recommend consuming these pieces together or separately? I think you should watch them together. Go back to 1979 and watch Mobile Suit Gundam, one of the most important anime series ever made. And then flash forward 16 years later and watch the next most important anime series ever made. Something I actually, I can't believe I forgot to mention this in my production segment. The way that it changed anime in a really practical way was the way that it was produced. Uh, before Evangelion, people were expected to just keep churning out episodes as long as it was popular. Mm. But all these people were watching Evangelion and thinking, huh, I guess I like anime now. What else can I watch? And what could they make for these people? And so 
I thought growing up that anime was a genre, was a medium that often had a beginning, middle, and end of the stories. And unlike American TV, when you reached that ending, you stopped. That wasn't true before. The After, British version versus the American version. <laughs> yes, yes. The British were that way. But the Japanese with anime weren't, and the changes that took place after Evangelion was that, one, there was more power given to the creator, they were Mm -hmm. allowed to have a beginning, middle, and end and not go on forever, and they released some of the pressure of uh, merchandising on the shows. Right, which Gundam did kick off. Yes, Gundam did kick off, but I'm talking about Evangelion. No, yeah, yeah. And anime, like... Guys, someday I'm going to try to get Kyle and Claire to cover this. Cowboy Bebop or Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, at least, guys. Anime like that came into an atmosphere for the medium that Evangelion Mm. had rejuvenated and in some ways saved. That makes sense. That's really cool. Because I think, actually, there's a lot more you can do when you have a beginning, middle, and end. I mean, I know that there's a lot. The best works have a beginning, middle, and end. And it's like with Friends where it hits a certain point and they just they can't keep pushing these out yeah because it's just for money and what if you let the creator do something really different that had not been done before because maybe there's an audience waiting for it that just hasn't shown up yet so funny it's like the uh sopranos of um anime yeah Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragon Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrepodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on our social medias at DSRA Podcast. I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. Our other host, Kyle Willoughby, can be found at KLEX303. That's K-L-E-X-303. And I, host and producer, James Foey, can be found at James Foey Jr. That's F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Neon Genesis Evangelion on our Facebook page where we will be posting some of our show uh, favorite I, articles. I promise, guys. I promise we got them ready to go. We're going to bring them out all the way back to that Dragon Ball Z episode. It's going to be great. We're going to swarm your Facebook feed. <laughs> our producer is James Bowie. Our logo is done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, and I can't make any comparisons to Neon Genesis characters because it's too sad. Once again, this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. 